Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Gary Bloom. Welcome to On The Sporting Couch. I'm a psychotherapist, counsellor and broadcaster, and that means I work one-to-one with all sorts of people who are having or have experienced problems in their day-to-day lives. It's sometimes called a talking therapy. It doesn't mean the individual is ill, but the sessions give people the opportunity to talk about things that are really affecting them and gives them a chance to get things off their chest. All of us will know someone who's going through a tough time and hopefully this series will encourage anyone who feels like they need help to find a counsellor. And there are some useful links on the TalkSport website. We'll give you these at the end of the show. Meet Brian Moore, one of the finest rugby union hookers ever to wear the number two jersey for England. He won 64 caps and played at three Rugby World Cups and was voted Rugby Union Player of the Year in 1991. Welcome to On The Sporting Couch, with not just one, but two psychotherapists in conversation, myself, Gary Bloom, and former England rugby union hooker, Brian Moore, nicknamed the Pitbull, who once described himself as almost pathological. So, two psychotherapists share a... It sounds like a joke, start of the joke, doesn't it? Two psychotherapists <laughs> share a radio studio. I know why I trained to be a psychotherapist. Why did you? Well, I'm training because I had the idea from a book which is still unwritten because it became too unwieldy, but hopefully will eventually get written on sporting retirement. Right. The problem that sports people have over and above what mainstream people have. And it became quite clear to me that whilst... The NGOs and the players' associations have got a lot better at finding people jobs, which is an important thing, mm. that they weren't touching or nowhere near enough the psychological side of retirement, which everyone has to go through at various stages, either early or late. And it affects them either marginally or right up to dying and everything in between, because it's that serious. And no sports person I know, and I don't believe there is one anyway, has no sequelae at all. Uh, Some cope with it well, some don't, and some struggle really badly. And in and amongst the other mental health issues in general, this is one which is a peculiar one to sports people for various reasons. Two or three in particular. One, most people retire towards the end of their life. Sports people don't. It's when probably only a third of their life is over. Two, they go from a position, if they've been very successful, of enormous prestige to what? Um, And I think thirdly, the public nature of what sports people do, especially high-profile sports people, is completely different to anyone else, apart from maybe uh, politicians. Um, But those aspects over and above all the other ones, loss of identity, loss of routine and so on, are um, idiosyncratic to sports people. And I just thought, because I had problems with my own retirement and I understand hopefully the issues, if I got trained properly as well, which was important to me to be professional about it, then I could make a difference. What's your issues? (laughs) Where do you start? Do you want to start on the alphabet? Uh, Abandonment, abuse, adoption, addiction, uh, that's just A's. Okay, let's start with the A's. 
abandonment because uh, you were adopted at birth. How did that, how's that affected you long term? Well, I didn't think it had. Like a lot of um, mental issues, people don't understand until it's explained to them and they're helped how and why things occur. And I didn't think it was a problem. My parents had always told me I was adopted um, before I actually understood what it was. Then when I did understand what it was, I, it didn't really seem to make any difference. Um, but I had sort of an overwhelming urge in my late 30s to try and discover something about um, my natural parents. I actually traced my, or people traced for me, my natural and my birth mother. I met her. It was difficult. The relationship's been difficult. And the thing is, I think you always want to believe that the circumstances in which you were given up for adoption were so awful for the mother that it was really no choice. But that wasn't the case for you, Brian. Well, because you I have d- a brother and sister. Yeah, who, I have a full brother and sister, and that, that they made weren't it, put up for adoption. Yes, no. I know, and that made it very difficult. And actually becoming a parent exacerbated the feeling because I thought on the one hand, you know, I can understand it. There were different times of the social stigma of single parenthood uh, was far different. It's not, it wasn't as it was to, as it is today, accepted without any problem at all. And yet I thought, you know what, I, I don't think there are any circumstances under which I would give my children away I, ju- I just couldn't conceive of that and the reason you don't ask the question you know was it something other uh, than absolute necessity is because the alternative is awful isn't it the alternative to that to that statement is that something was more important or the, the other self was more important and that's a very uncomfortable proposition to deal with I think you know where I'm going with this one. Yeah. Um, I think what I'm trying to say to you, and I'll, I'll rephrase it, is how has it affected the major relationships of your life? I don't know. And the reason I don't know is because I can't compartmentalise, I can't divide up into convenient percentages the effects of that issue or the effects of several other issues, which have also been major. I do know that cumulatively... It's made for difficult times and a lot of unhappiness, really, at times when really, you know, it shouldn't have been there. And that's one of the that's one of the most difficult aspects. Some, some of the bits of my life that I should really have embraced and found joy in have been marred and not what they could perhaps or should have been. Um, and the thing is, if you and I am getting there, it can find a way, as I say, to accommodate those. There's still not the joy of the instant moment at the time. You know, it's like the person who gets awarded a medal because someone's cheated. You know, they have the satisfaction of having the medal, but they don't have the moment of glory knowing they've achieved that in front of the crowd. They don't have the medal ceremony and so on. So let's um, pick up what you've just said. And one of the most shocking things I think I've heard about you, Brian, is just what you've said now. Moment of success, Grand Slam victory. I think you were playing Scotland. Big team photograph. Old England players celebrating. And you're not there. No, I'm in the changing room. Um, Why? Because I didn't feel that I deserved to be there. It's a strange thing. I remember... Uh, Beverly Turner, James Cracknell's wife, being interviewed. And uh, she made a statement. She said, show me a room of Olympians and I'll show you a room of people whose parents didn't love them. (laughs) And then she obviously thought, oh, that's a bit strong. So she said, oh, I didn't tell them they loved them enough. And then she thought, oh, is that right? And then she said, look, no, I'm not, look, I'm just saying they're all mad. And I found with nearly every top sports person I've met, with one or two exceptions, notable ones, that there is something not quite right, not quite normal about very uh, high-achieving sports, and on other people as well, the businessmen and so on. And I've made the point, whenever I hear someone described as driven, I now want to say, well, why? Why are you driven? Because driven 
definitively necessarily means non-consensual. And there's a big difference between people being super ambitious and being driven. Because if you're super ambitious, you can carry on achieving things. And be satisfied. And be satisfied, mm. that's the point. When driven people are always trying to tick another box. If I just do this, then I'll be fine. If I just do that, what if I, uh, well, what if I just achieve that, then I'll be okay. And you find that actually, first of all, there are a myriad of boxes to tick, which you can't necessarily succeed in, nor could you ever achieve them all anyway. But the fact is, you get to the ones which you think will be the denominators, will be the ones which are definitive, and it's not the experience you thought it would be. And you feel dissatisfied, and you feel, I mean, there's a phrase, an expectation is a disappointment waiting to happen. Mm -hmm. You have an expectation that something will do something, and it doesn't, so you're disappointed. You once described yourself as almost pathological. Well, my definition of pathological is is, is, is abnormal in, in, in terms of the severity of the reaction to things, either emotionally or, or whatever. And I think in many ways that's, that's probably right. How did it present itself as a young man growing up and your determination to well, become... Well, for example, we... I remember distinctly losing in the final of the Halifax under-14 competition. And... It was over 20 overs. And I scored 37, actually, and I played quite well. But we lost narrowly. And I went home, and my mum said, how do you do? I said, we lost. I said, oh, OK. Did you get anything for losing? I said, well, I got a little statuette-type thing. He said, oh, can I have a look at it? I said, no, I threw it over a wall. I just threw it away because I didn't want to. Which, I mean, that's pathological. <laughs> that's not normal. You see, I think... Um there is a strong element, Brian, of when you lose as a professional and elite sports person, what that does to the brain. And I think the best way to, the best parallel I can draw is saying to an adolescent child, the answer is no. And not only no, but there's public shame going on because you've disappointed thousands and thousands of people. Have you ever felt in that position? Oh, completely. And you'll still get people who say things like, I mean, the 1990 Grand Slam loss in Scotland was was devastating at the time and, and, and for many, many years after. And I still get people come up to me and say, you know what, I, I was at Murrayfield, I can't tell you how disappointed I was. I said, you weren't as disappointed as I was. Um, and they say, well, you know, I had a trip up there, I paid lots of money. I said, listen, tell you what, if you can say the answer to all these questions is yes, then I'll believe that you were as disappointed as me. Do you ever wake up in the middle of the night thinking, you know what, I wish I hadn't spent all that money going to see England uh, at Murrayfield. Do you ever feel, when the subject comes up, do you ever feel still a sense of loss or shame or have you moved on? Do you ever think of that weekend in relation to other things you've done and it spoil even the successful ones you've had because something is saying to you whatever you did even if you won that you lost that one and you don't do you so you can't tell on the sporting couch with gary blue welcome back to on the sporting couch a sports therapy show with me gary bloom and my guest in the studio is former England rugby union hooker, Brian Moore. Let's move on to another of your A's, and a very painful A, Brian, and that's the abuse you suffered when you were 10 years old, the sexual abuse, by somebody who should have been uh, an advocate of the family and who yeah. knew your family very well. Yes. What's that done long term? Well, people have coping mechanisms necessarily because they need to protect themselves. And mine was to shut all the feelings down around it and insist that it had played no part in any of my upbringing and later life. And 
when it was all finally released, I understood that to be what it was simply a way to block out the pain because I didn't want and I didn't have the capacity to to deal with it and it's actually I understand why people do that because the alternative is to go into something about which you know very little in terms of um, expertise and it's a very dangerous and potent subject and if people are if it's released into your everyday psyche without any possibility of it being addressed professionally then that can be enormously destructive and it was a a visit to the child online protection agency as it as was it's part of the um the whole criminal um justice thing now and i was asked by a friend of mine to go along and see the work they did to raise help raise money for them and she didn't know what had happened and i and i'm glad she did this but she had said subsequently if she'd known she wouldn't have invited me <laughs> Um, and I remember just coming out of there and just sitting on a wall and sobbing for about half an hour and thinking, you know, my, now might be a time actually to address this because when you look back on your life and you look at certain things you've done, certain attitudes you've taken, certain times, certain reactions you've had, and they've been pathological or they've been extreme, there's a reason for that and the underlying um, strength of feeling was undoubtedly driven by all sorts of things but this was one of them and the feeling of shame of not being good enough of lack of self-esteem which people who know me would have doubted and they wouldn't necessarily understand until I explained it to them that part of the bravado and the gregariousness and so on is a is a you know a defense and a coping and a front uh, mechanism and one of the most difficult things you know why didn't you say something for a long time because i didn't think i'd be believed it was a very different time then now hopefully when these things are much more public people will feel able to tell people because i say to people you know if you can find the wherewithal for whatever reason to to tell another person about it from that point on you won't be alone anymore you might be lonely but there's a very big difference do you think there's a relationship between what happened to you as a 10 year old brian and the very aggressive way let's put it that way that you played your rugby your nickname was pitbull um undoubtedly undoubtedly i think part of the competitive side is genetic from my natural mother because my uh, parents my adopted parents were very uh, placid um, people but the Grand Slam incident which we described earlier and the drive to just keep on going keep training and so on beyond the point at which other people did was at least partially if not mainly due to the fact that I, I used to say to myself you know that's not good enough that's not good enough you're not good enough um, you, you need to try harder and the thing is it in sport you're actually rewarded for those things because it, it it brings you things the problem is when you stop playing sport and you're in in in, in mainstream life those things don't apply you know the mantras and the the cliches that are well known in sport you know second is nothing she'll be a good loser and I'll show you a loser. All these things make sense in sport. They don't in life because that's not the way life is. And if you carry on trying to apply those lessons, you get into trouble um, because they don't work. Uh, and I didn't understand that. I do a little bit more now. I'm going to go for another A, which we haven't mentioned, and that's your alter ego, which you talk about a lot in your autobiography. And you give that alter ego a name, Gollum, which is the the ghost the spectre that haunts you everybody has an alter ego everybody has that little uh, voice inside them that uh, is a doubting voice All what, I would what does Gollum say to you oh 
anything and everything it wants to. And it's very good because it's part of me so it knows me intimately and whatever tack I am on or try to take it knows a way to undermine it. Just for example, you know, I could say I won three Grand Slams. Yeah, but you lost the Scotland one, didn't you? I played in three World Cups. Yeah, but you didn't win the final in 91, did you? I was voted Rugby World Player of the Year. Yes, however, the fact is that your career on occasions, on the big occasion, on two big occasions, you weren't able to do it. And I would say, yeah, I was part of a team. Yeah, but you know. And, and in the end, ultimately, even if rational argument against it fails, it will simply say, I don't care what you say. You and I both know what you're really like. If other people knew the bits we know, no one would go in near you. No one would like you. Um, you're a fraud. This is all pretense, isn't it? It's artifice. Even the stuff uh, that's actually been difficult, you're only saying that to gain sympathy. It, it hasn't been made better by the fact that I was trained as a lawyer, litigation lawyer, for 17 years. So, you know, I was paid every working day of my life to argue. And given that I'm arguing with myself uh, on these occasions, uh, they can be prolonged, uh, fruitless. And there used to be hours going backwards and forwards in my head. And one of my counsellors actually, in the end, wrote something in the back of a, a book for me, and he said, this is how to deal with Gollum. He said, thank you for everything you said. I hear what you say, now f*** off. And that's the point. If you engage with this, you're never going to win. I tell you why I think the I am with this. There's the bad golem, the bad golem, the bad spectre, the bad ghost who continually undermines you. I don't know where the good golem is, because in very many people, Brian, you have those two figures arguing with each other. You know you're lovable. You know that you can have successful relationships. You've had several successful careers. Where is the golem saying, you know what, Brian, there might have been failures. We all have failures. What about the successes? I think that's starting to emerge. The problem has always been that the natural and def inclination and default position has been with the negative. And to start accentuating the positive is quite difficult because that's never been the case. It's never been the starting position. And then if you do start from that position, you then immediately set up the argument, <laughs> which we've just described. And the, the way to try and deal with it is to set that particular part up and then, as I say, say to the part, yep, fine, I know what you're going to say, actually. I'm quite aware of everything you're going to say, but I'm just not listening to you now. So I'm just going to stay with the residual feeling that he's actually quite you know, it's actually quite balanced and quite nice. But that, that good golem, the good spectre, the person who does give you the, the warm stuff, often comes from the main caregiver. And your adopted mother and your adopted father were very positive role models in your life, Brian. There must have been lots of love mm -hmm. and warmth. You were brought up in a, uh, a family with, with, with think six siblings, is that right? Yes, two, two uh, natural born of the... My parents and then four adopted. So you had a, what you describe in your autobiography and what you described since a loving family. Mm. There must have been lots of positive messages going towards you. Why were they not soaked up like Yorkshire bread in Yorkshire gravy? Well, you know what? I think until the age of nine, I, you know, I think I was like that. And then the things happened and that changed. So the sexual abuse age 10 completely fractures this relationship with your with your past with being a young boy. With hindsight, yes, I think it, I think it did. But I think it's important that we recognize that especially working with people and there will be people listening to this show Brian who have either been abused themselves or have been have been part of families where abuse is, is has happened. They have to know that it's out there and how somebody like you, and I'm going to stress this word now, survives it. 
Well, people survive with different coping strategies, as I say, and each individual finds their own one. All I would say is that this is such a powerful and influential topic that even if you think you've managed to compartmentalise it, not address it, I'm fairly sure that it will be working away destructively in the background and at some point it will be better for you, if you can find a way to do it, to try and resolve it with someone who knows what they're doing. Subscribe to this podcast on your podcast app and never miss an episode. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is On The Sporting Couch, a sports therapy show. I'm Gary Bloom, a psychotherapist, and with me, a trainee psychotherapist, former England rugby union hooker, Brian Moore. Brian, you've been married three times. <laughs> yeah, I can't afford, I can't afford another one. <laughs> Did these themes come up in your, in your marriages, the ones that... Uh, no, no, other than by absence, in a way... Um, because I hadn't addressed them at the point in my first two marriages, as I say, the influences and the consequences of that were obviously there, mm. but weren't addressed. And so, you know, I'm not an easy person to live with. I'm completely aware of that. You know, and I, there must have been times when the first two wives were wondering what on earth is going on? What? Why are you acting like this? Why... Is that reaction like this is completely out of uh, normal character or it's completely divorced from the context of the situation? I don't understand why you're behaving like this. Can you give us a for instance of what you've found difficult to do or difficult to achieve? I remember, well, one of my wives said, I just let me in. You know, we've got so far, but you, you always seem to just... At the last moment, the very most intimate things keep people at bay, and that's that. Yes, and and that was the truth when I looked back on it, because that's the bit you're trying to protect, because you don't want things to go wrong again. The feeling is that if I risk this, it will. This bit is mine. I'm not going to share this bit. And obviously, if you don't risk that, you don't get the proper intimacy, you don't get the proper relationship in its fullest sense that you would have had, because that's the only way. And it is uh, an enormous risk. But you would think that if you've got the right person, then that would be the more, you know, that for, for the, the marriages that work, that is the bit that people treasure, because they're able to be completely candid and open, good and bad. And through that, you get a deep understanding of people, a deep love of people. If one party is always reserving a part of them, you never get there. Have you ever truly been in love, Brian? 
yes, I think yeah, I thought yeah, I thought so. Yes, I'm sure I'm sure I have. Subject to this caveat that I'm not sure that I was in a position or was able to give and risk, you know, you know everything that I had to bring to the relationship. Because falling in love with somebody is about a, a lack, a loss of control, complete loss, complete of, control. loss of control. And that's very scary for many men. We don't want to get hurt. We're going to hold a bit back, yep. but you can't get to. Yep. But how? what, in my experience, many men don't understand is that is the death of a relationship, that holding back. Well, it's certainly the death of a complete relationship. How do you find, How easy do you find it to make relationships with men? teammates colleagues no 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 real problem on one level and i don't have a problem certainly now you know being open and expressing emotion with them um and in many ways it's easier in a sense because there's a natural barrier because it's not an intimate relationship uh, in any sense at all, and I disagree. I think I think. I th well, no. Uh, well, you mean it's not sexually intimate, but no, it can I don't be mean, incredi no, I don't, incredibly no, I don't intimate. Mean that. I mean this: there are boundaries. First of all, you're only there with them in certain prescribed circumstances. You know, you're not living with them at home. You're not in a in, in a sort of a domestic situation. A domestic situation. Mm. So there are natural boundaries. But I would argue that a dressing room of a, 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 an international rugby team or a club rugby team is an incredibly intimate space. It is. Yes, um, yes, it is. You're right. It is incredibly intimate, incredibly intense. Um, so how did you get on in there? I mean, I, the, the, the thing that I miss most about playing is not uh, the actual act, because I know I can't play and hold and, you know, too slow, too fat. But I do miss... My friends, I miss being on the coach. I miss the camaraderie. The word banter, unfortunately, has been spoiled by idiots. But, um, you know, when it was a little less um, pejorative, you know, I miss that. Did you banter? Did you bully people? I know we're going to have a dis disagreement about this, but I'm prepared to do so. Did, did you bully people, Brian? Of the England coach, you survived on your wits. And people used to rip each other mercilessly about anything um, and yes I, I suppose you could say that might have been bullying I tell you what in, in a, I, I would say no in this sense is there is there was no fun in uh, having a go at people who got upset on, on topics which were too personal because the reason to do it was to have a laugh and people end and we did so when it got to that stage, people just said leave because no point. Um, and and also, um, if people weren't able to give as good as they got, again, it was no no fun because it's like picking on people. And what 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 is the use of that? The people who used to sit at the back of the bus, the people who, you know, and you your turn came and you just gave and got. And I I, I think if you had a transcript of what was said, people would be horrified at the personal aspects of it and the way in which people were savaged. And yet, it, you did that. And, and funnily enough, the more you knew someone, the more trust you had in the relationship you had with them, the more secure you felt with them, the more personal and cutting you could be. Um, because it's actually very difficult to be like that with someone you don't know well and someone or someone who... Um, you think it, you know, we'll, we'll be upset by it. We knew when we were giving this stuff out that the people will give us as good as they got, and um, that they could cope, they could cope with it. Did you ever, at any stage, Brian, think actually that's really below the belt? Did anybody tease you about being adopted or come from the origins you did, or perhaps did they know about the abuse? Did no, they didn't know the, about the abuse. Um, but I remember, for example, when I unfortunately smacked someone outside a pub about 27 years ago he came out three times and had a go at me the first two i ignored the third time i let him have it and i shouldn't have done i shouldn't have done but i did it's the way things happen um i put my hand up to it didn't do it again but um i walked into the team <laughs> room and wade Dooley, a pc from the Lancashire constabulary said uh, oh are you out on day release are you straight away bang <laughs> 
And so, you know, the, and that was the, the, you know, that was the topic for, for that night. And I tried to deflect it onto other people. It didn't work the whole night of it. If I'd have been genuinely really very upset about it and, and whatever, they would have left it alone. I'd just like to talk about the relationship between what happened to you as a 10-year-old and the fact that you then, as well as being a, a very, very talented rugby player, also were interested in the law, studied uh, law at Nottingham University, went on to be a solicitor. Do you think this sense of right and wrong and your ethical values were moulded by that instance as a 10-year-old and took you towards wanting to uphold the law? No, not directly. I don't. The reason I did law was um, I didn't get into St John's College, Oxford, to do politics, philosophy and economics. I passed the written part of the um, entrance exam I failed on the interview um, I'm not surprised I failed when you say to a six-year-old something and they say it's not fair they really feel that they feel it's desperately unfair they feel it all the way through yeah. they don't understand the context of it they don't understand the wider meaning of it they are really very upset and I actually get like that with with certain topics which is one of the reasons that keeps driving me on when the England players were fighting against the RFU about amateurism. I felt that it was unfair. I felt we were being taken advantage of. And although I was working full time and didn't have much time, I knew that the RFU were trying to wear us down. They thought that in the end we, we would give in. And at the lowest points when I thought I just can't go on with this anymore, it's taking too much time, we're not getting anywhere. I then used to feel, you know what, this is not fair. I'm not going to give in because I know that right is on our side. And that sustained me. And we went through and, and various things happened. And it's that sort of thing. But I would say that locks into your story in your life, Brian, about what wasn't fair, what wouldn't, what shouldn't have happened, who was looking after you. It what may, was... look, that, that may well do. And that's, the, that, that's actually the first time that that's been put to me and there's a lot of merit in that, a lot of weight, I think. Because you are... You come across in your autobiography as kind of not only qualified in the law, but, you know, if there's any dressing room upset when you talked about the the, the problems with the RFU, uh, amateurism, the offers that you were made to go on a professional tour, you are the person who takes this principled line and saying this isn't fair, but this is the way it should be done. This is a huge thread through your life, Brian. And I'm wondering where it comes from. I can only, only guess... But when such a huge thing has gone wrong in your life, and the question that we haven't even addressed is who was looking after you, who was protecting you, who was looking out for you, and that would, to me, if it happened to me, and something has similar happened to me, has left me with a lot of anger. Yes, uh, that may well be a huge part of it. You're not going to stand by and let stuff happen to you that just isn't right. That that that's true, and I, I'm not entirely sure exactly why that is. I think part of it is must be the reasons you said, but as I said at the start of this question, I've always felt that way, and I still feel where other people might think, "All right, yeah, it's not right, it's not fair," but actually, you know, I don't feel that strongly about it. I do f do feel strongly, and it, I can't do anything about that. It's it's intrinsic. It's innate and that is beneficial in some ways you're listening to on the sporting couch with me gary bloom and former england rugby union hooker brian moore let's go on to another of your a's addictive behaviors when was it at its worst for you brian um well I don't think it's ever gone away. I think you, if you've got addictive personality, it's always in the background. You've just got to be aware that it's there and try and identify. And it doesn't have to be substance, although it was for a time. Uh, abuse, it can be anything. You know, the the way in which... I mean, and part, partly the, the, the addiction to training and, and, you know, pushing yourself was undoubtedly part of it. But as I say, in a sporting context, you get rewarded for that. Because even when people say... The sporting mantra of never give up, always carry on. I say, well, what if you're a heroin addict? That's not a very good. You know, that's not a very good. Uh, <laughs> um, that's not a very good proposition, is it? So um, I don't know where you take that really. I mean, it's just there, and you've got to be aware of it, and you've got to just because it, it doesn't actually. It doesn't matter what the subject is. If you do something to excess, 
um, and pathologically, it's probably not going to have a good consequence, is it? Well, let's flip it back to yourself and say, say that actually doing something to excess, like playing rugby, training, preparing yourself... For Other than the, that context. It was, had a very positive effect on you. Mm. You could argue it was the saving of you. Well, you could only say that if you, if you have a crystal ball and could say what you, your life would have been without it. It might have been successful in other ways. I might have enjoyed myself more. You know, I might have been happier. Um, don't get me wrong, I mean, I got, I got playing and, and, and the relationships I had did bring me a lot, has brought me a lot. And I don't want it to sound, I don't want to sound ungrateful, nor do I want to sound as though every part of it was a struggle, because it wasn't. It's just that in the end, um, it perhaps isn't as people thought, that's all I'm saying. But this goes back to what you were saying before, Brian, that your inability to enjoy the success that you've had. I'd like just to, to turn the, the spotlight onto a period of your time when you lived in Soho in central London. When um, Even now when I mention Soho in central London, there's a smile plays on your lips about when all the handbrakes were off and you really did go for it, didn't you? Yes, that was a mad six years. Um, a lot of people I know, when they moved to London from university... In their 20s, they have a wild time. 30s, they get into a relationship or get married and they have children. And their life is different. Until I retired at rugby about 30, age 35, I actually have been very disciplined. You know, there were big drinking sessions, but, you know, week to week, day to day, I trained very hard. You know, I didn't party. When I got divorced the first time and... I hadn't done this and I wasn't playing and the brakes were off. I had my sort of mid-twenties in my late thirties. And having, you know, living in Soho and being a partner in a law firm and having, you know, reasonable income and what have you, um, it was big party time. And uh, when you got to meet the sort of people I was fortunate enough to meet from other walks of life and they were entertaining and and so on, it, it, it was a revelation to me. And... It, and in a lot of, I mean, I wouldn't actually. I wouldn't. I wouldn't give those years back. I'd give back the difficult times, but I wouldn't give back those particular things. And actually, I think it was almost something that was bound to happen. You're listening to On the Sporting Couch with me, Gary Bloom, in conversation with Brian Moore, the Rugby Union International turned sports broadcaster. Brian has in the past been a key figure in talk sports rugby coverage and he went to Australia in 2013 to commentate on the British and Irish Lions test matches. But it was in moments away from rugby that Brian showed his lighter side, not least when he came face to face with a koala bear. Now you tell me how to do this properly. Sure. Because I'm sure there is a legal way and a legal way. <laughs> no worries. So come over here for me. Now I have to stand, stand on a... Stand right on a mark here, which is just like you're right on a mark. Yeah, that's so. right. So pop your hands together for me. And pretty much nothing else. He'll just do his own right. thing. Just coming over to... So touch, engage. Like and there we go. And he'll just kind of grab onto you like that. But make a perfect, perfect young child's uh, It's a similar size. Pet, pet because they're, they're beautifully supine. And they're cuddly, uh, they're cute beyond belief. I rather like this. It's, uh, I tell you, it, it, it brings out in a maternal way that you, I never expected, to be honest. I never expected it at all. Because they are, because they are so, well, docile in a way, but because they look so lovable, it brings out a protection mechanism in you that, uh, yes. that perhaps you didn't know was there, certainly in me anyway. I'd like to talk to you about being a dad because that seems to have changed a lot of things for you, Brian, and your relationships with your children are hugely important to you. What have they taught you? What, is it, what have you learnt from being a dad? It's very difficult to be pompous when you're a parent because you're cut off at the knees by children who can talk, you're vomited over by children who can't talk, um, and children demand of you, and you have to give. 
because they're your responsibility. And when they're very young and they can't do anything for themselves, then you're totally uh, in control, but you have a total obligation for safety and well-being in every sense. And that sort of responsibility is quite hard at times. You know, it's wearing. I'm going to cut you off there. That's the cognitive response. That's the that's the logical response. I want to know emotionally what it does to you. If you're a parent, you can't. There's no point in saying this to a non-parent. And I'm not trying to be morally superior, but. Your relationships and things that happen with your children hit you on a gut level. and You don't need to explain that to parents. And when I wasn't a parent, I could try and empathise with that. But the nearest I got was sympathy. Because I don't, could understand bits of it. But I couldn't. you would never be able to feel that absolute core reaction to anything to do with your children. Certainly that anything that happens that, that, that's bad or unfortunate. And that's just something that is there as an intrinsic bond. And everything is heightened around your children, all your senses, all your reactions. And part of the difficulty of being a parent is trying to get the perspective. Because whatever handbooks there are out there, and there are several thousand, they're not about you and your children. There may be elements of communality and the many elements that are useful but of necessity they can't address those particular personality traits they can't address the things that are germane and and and, and you know only apply and are unique but how have, have your kids changed you brian have they changed your outlook to the the world have they changed your relationship with yourself hopefully they've made me a bit softer hopefully they've made me they, they've helped on the journey of understanding exactly what is really important nothing you can buy i'm not being blasé about this if you haven't got money money is really important to live you need that but once you get beyond a certain level of comfort nothing you can buy is 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 ultimately worth anything really particularly it's not what you're going to miss it's not what you think it's not what brings you um the deep an abiding satisfaction my eldest daughter might turn out to be a very good rower when she told me that she might be trying out for the great britain squad in two years time if she gets there i will be i will have far more pride in that achievement than anything i've ever done far more and there's your emotion brian you wondered about the difference between the logic and the emotion there's the emotion and I bet if she wins a gold medal one day, you'll be there in the photograph with her, won't you? You, oh. won't, you won't be hiding in the dressing room. No, no, I, I won't if she'll, if she'll let me. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there's the bond, isn't it? Because you say, well, how do you access those emotions? They're here in this studio right now. I remember uh, when I took her for a fir the eldest one, when I took her for her first jabs, and she wailed like she would do. And I remember looking at me and, as if to say, Daddy, I'm being hurt and you're not doing anything about it. And I just was in tears because I I couldn't I could see someone in pain and I couldn't I couldn't help and I knew it was good for her. And I was thinking, I you know what, I, I'd do anything to take that away from you if I could, but I can't, I'm sorry. when people you know when people say people talk you do you don't you never actually know how you will react in a situation until it happens. You can Believe everything you want. Do I believe I'd be brave under fire in battle? I hope so, but I don't know. Would I sacrifice my life for my country? Maybe. I don't know. I hope so, in the right circumstances. Would I give my life for my kids? Undoubtedly, without any question whatsoever. That's the difference, I think. And yet those strands are go back deep and long to your own childhood Brian, and what happened to you? Yes, quite probably. Are you happy now? I have more moments than I did. Look, I, I've a realistic goal for me is to is to to get there more often. I understand that, that to me it's pointless in pursuing a nirvana that is probably not going to happen because that 
also his expectation and he's going to be a disappointment. What I think you have to do is get more moments and longer moments where, yep, things are OK. And looking back now to your rugby career, which is why you're here, you're, you're most famous for being a hooker. When you look back, having had a little bit of time since your retirement, what are your emotions about being an England hooker, probably the most famous England hooker of your generation? I'm pleased that I had the opportunity to do that. I'm happy that I tried as hard as I could to get whatever outcomes I, I got. The consequences of being just good at one thing have been extraordinary. There have been a myriad of possibilities have come up for me that I would not have had. So I'm grateful for those. I'm a proud of what I did, yes, in, in, in lots of ways. Um, Will you ever get to love yourself for that period of your life, which you didn't manage to do at that time? I don't know, but I, I won't hate myself. Brian Moore, many thanks for joining me on The Sporting Couch. Thank you. You've been listening to On The Sporting Couch, a programme that's attempted to lift the lid on mental health issues in sport. I'm Gary Bloom, a psychotherapist, counsellor and sports broadcaster, and my guest in the studio has been former England rugby union hooker Brian Moore. I hope the programme will have encouraged anyone who has or knows anyone who has mental health issues to come forward and get help. And there are some useful links on the TalkSport website if you have a look at talksport.com forward slash sporting couch. I'm Gary Bloom, and please remember, there's no such thing as good health without good mental health. Goodbye. On the Sporting Couch with Gary Bloom. Find more podcasts from TalkSport at talksport.com slash podcasts or by searching for TalkSport in the podcast store. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.